Scripture this morning. John chapter 4. We are following the life of Christ through the New Testament in a chronological order, in chronological sense. And I hope that already you have learned that by doing this, we learn that before the Galilean ministry of our Lord, which the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record, there was an earlier Judean ministry, a ministry that took place shortly after Jesus began his public ministry. He made a trip down to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Passover there. And here in John chapter 4, he is on his way back with his disciples, back from the southern area of Israel around Jerusalem, headed back to what is home base, Capernaum, a city there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. So he's traveling from south to north. Of course, he's not traveling by car or railroad or airplane. He's traveling by foot. He's walking. He's passing through this Samaritan village by the name of Sychar, here in John chapter 4. And he has this remarkable encounter with the woman at the well. Well, we've spent two Sundays talking about that, I would this morning that we go on to the conclusion of that matter, starting this morning in John 4, beginning with verse 31, and we will read through verse 42. John 4, 31 through 42. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him anything to eat? And Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And here is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that on which ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors." And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, who testified, He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. We have seen here that Jesus has taught this woman of her thirst. That's the problem. Is that men don't even know they're thirsty and they don't know certainly what they're thirsty for. But if you look at their lives, you can see that there's something missing. This whole woman's life was a saga of thirst, unquenched thirst. Jesus explains that he himself has life. He has the water of life. He is able to meet the thirsting of the soul. And the thirst, the water that he gives is nothing less than communicating to man the spirit of the living God. And they that drink of this water, the well goes with them. 
I guess that's a good way of putting it. The well is in them. The place where the water comes out is within, not outside. And I again draw the great contrast that most of the time what makes life worth living. And you understand when I use the word life, I'm not merely talking about existence. I've spent about five days in ICU. I know what it is to merely exist. And folks, I wouldn't call that living. You're existing. You're not consciousless. But you're sure not living. Remember the story of the two drunks that happened up on the burial of a rich man. This rich man wanted to be buried in his Cadillac. And they this big hole in the ground, the cranes lowering the Cadillac into the grave with this man's body inside and these two drunks saying one to the other, Man, that's living. Well, it's not really, but I think they're on to something. They've got the right idea that life is not just a mere existence. There is a quality of life. It's not just length. It's, it's height and breadth. It's three-dimensional. And yes, the loss will exist in hell. But hell is described as the second death. It's existence, but it is existence without the quality that makes life life. And that is what Jesus is saying that he came to give, and he will give it, even to a woman like this, a woman with, shall we say at very best, a mixed record, a sordid background. He is saying that for asking, I will give you this water. It's an amazing encounter. Well, We also said that they who drink this water will thirst no more. And we don't mean in the physical sense that a Christian never gets thirsty, of course, and neither do we even mean that we'll not thirst for more of this water. But there is a sense in which the one who truly drinks of this water never thirsts for anything else. They're not thirsty for that stuff anymore. There is a sense in which the water of life takes primacy, priority over everything else. And John, as we pointed out, doesn't use words previously here. When he gives you some little detail, he means for you to pick up on it. And what he mentions here is fascinating. In verse 28, the woman then left her water pot. The very reason that she went out to the well in the first place was to draw water in this water pot. And now she leaves it. She forgets all about it in her haste to go back into the city and to tell the residents there of whom she has met. And I'm saying to you, that's exactly what the water of life does. You say, well, why did she leave her water pot? Because she had something better to do. Something more important came along. Ever notice that you can't give full attention to a whole bunch of things at the same time? I mean, if you can give full attention to everything, you're not giving... Well, you know what I mean. You can't focus on everything at once. We're not made that way. And what Jesus is saying is that the water of life now becomes the focus of our existence. It's all built around that. We found it. We're not looking for it anymore. We found it. We found what satisfies. Fundamentally, something's changed. We're not looking for it anymore. We know who it is. We know where it is. We've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good. To underscore this matter, notice now that the disciples in the tail end of this conversation have come back from town, presumably with some food, 
And once the conversation ends, they come to our master and they ask him if he would like to eat something and he's not hungry. And again, the disciples think in the physical sense, well, somebody must have brought him something to eat. That must be what it is. Somebody's brought him a sack lunch while we were away uh, getting something to eat in town. But Jesus now begins to show us that there is another kind of meat. Now, the word meat, if you're reading from the King James, is sort of translating a generic word in the Greek that just means food. It's talking about food. And Jesus is now showing us that just like there's another kind of water, water that gives life as opposed to physical water, now he's going to teach us that there's another kind of food besides what we would call tangible, real food, stuff we're going to be eating on back here in the back in a little bit when we conclude here. That food. And just as water is that which refreshes and gives life, so it is that food is that which satisfies. Food is that which sustains you. And so he's showing that there's two kinds of food. There's this physical food that we eat on about three times a day, and then there is this other kind of food. And notice again which takes primacy, which takes the priority over the other. Just as the water that he's going to give the woman takes primacy over physical water, seen in the fact that she leaves her water pot at the well, now he's saying, I'm not hungry, I don't need the food you have brought me because I have other food. There's something else that I have fed upon, something else that satisfies, nourishes, and sustains my life. What is this food? Verse 34, Jesus saith to them, my meat or my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. What Jesus is saying is just as physical food satisfies the hungering of your body. So this, shall I call it soul food? That's really what it is. This is the real soul food. That's the soul food. The food which satisfies the cravings, the hungering of the soul. Thus, Just like food sustains and nourishes your physical life, this sustains and satisfies and nourishes your spiritual life. And that food is nothing less than to do the will of him that sent me, to finish his work. In other words, we have moved now from water to food. Did you see that transition? The water being that which imparts life and refreshes life, to food that which satisfies and sustains life. And the food is not just that which gives life, but that which satisfies. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I have found something satisfying to my soul, and that being the case, I'm not hungry for the physical food that you bring. This takes precedence over the other. Now, all Jesus is really saying here is what Moses told Israel back in Deuteronomy. Man does not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's the very word, of course, that Jesus quoted when Satan tempted him after he had fasted for 40 days to turn stones into bread. Use your supernatural power to satisfy the appetite of your flesh. And the answer is, there's another kind of food. The Word of God, obeying God, doing God's will, doing God's work. And that food satisfies and nourishes life more than satisfying the appetites of the body. 
But notice that we have made a subtle transition here from water to food. And the food, and in that transition, we're moving away from life, which is connected with water, to work, which is connected to food. My food is to do the will of him that sent me, namely, to finish the work. There was a work, there was a task that God had given his son to do. And his food, that which satisfied him, was to do and finish that work. You notice that we do work. I, I think one of the most miserable times in life is when you can't do anything. When you're absolutely idle. Now, we like to think that's when we would be happy. You know, we've worked so hard and, you know, if we just had some time off where we would just sit around and do nothing. But actually, we're not made that way. God made us to work, to do something, to be productive. And we don't find life satisfying. I, I think, David, you and I, we grew up on a farm, so we have this sort of background. And I think those of us from the farm life... It was easier in those days to look back at the end of the day and say, look what I accomplished today. You know, I plowed the back 40 or I picked this much cotton or whatever the case might be. In city life, modern life, it's difficult sometimes to look back at the end of the day and say, what did I accomplish today? More times than not, I'm saying, what did I mess up today? That's sort of the way it is. There's not something I can say, well, see right there, there it is. That's what I did today. And you could do that on the farm. But Jesus is pointing that out, that, it's that man was made to work. And there's a sense in which we work, certainly to earn a paycheck, but there's also a sense in which working is one of the best tonics for the soul of man. Especially men. There's a satisfaction in being able to accomplish something, to do something. You know the feeling you get when you've had this long project, you know, whatever it might be, and finally it's finished. It's complete. There's a sense of satisfaction. There's a sense of complacency. It's the complacency and satisfaction that Jesus exhibited on the cross when he said those words, it's finished. It's finished. I've done it. Notice here he's saying that my food is to do the work that God sent me to do. And there on the cross he could say, I did it. Complete. The word, the Greek word, just one word in Greek. We make three English words out of it. Accomplished. And there's a satisfaction in doing and completing work, even in the physical realm. Now, you might love your job. I've had people say, I just love my job. And I generally ask them this question, do you love it so much that you would do it if you weren't being paid? You know, can you imagine your employer coming to you and saying, well, you know, you do a great job here. We love, we love your work. You just do great work. And you're a wonderful employee. We just have this little problem. You know, we just don't have any money to pay you. So we want you to keep coming just like you always have, except you just won't get a paycheck. Now, as much as you might love your work, would you show up on that basis? And no, there is something else we do. Work not only satisfies us in its own sense, but it also sustains us. It's that which supplies our need. We work for reward. There's a paycheck. We're to be fruitful, we're to be productive, and that's not wrong. That's the way it's supposed to work, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. You see, he's explaining really for the first time to his disciples. They've just been following him around so far. They've just been watching, listening, observing. 
Jesus is explaining for the first time that they're hands. Now, I assume David and I, we grew up on a farm. We know what that means. You understand the word hands? We had hands that lived on the farm. Now, there's more than hands, you know. There's a body attached to the hand, but that's what we call them. You go get the hands. Go take the hands to the field. That meant go pick them up and take them out so they can start chopping the cotton. What Jesus is explaining to his disciples, really for the first time, is that they're really hands. That what they have been watching him do and listening to him teach, they are about to be employed in the same work in which he is engaged. And therefore he starts using this agricultural metaphor here in verse 35 about harvest. That's really the first thing that he's teaching them is that they are to be engaged in the work of harvest. I think that Jesus probably, when he says these words, is watching the stream of villagers. You remember the woman left her water pot at the well, went back into the city several hundred, maybe a half a mile away. And now Jesus is watching the stream of villagers coming out of the village coming out to inquire about him, coming out to see this man that the woman has told them about, and as he is watching these villagers come his way, he makes these remarks that you think there's still four months until harvest. This was apparently said in, we would think in the wintertime perhaps, but he's saying the harvest has already begun. The fields, look at the fields. The fields are white unto harvest. So in other words, just as there is a spiritual food, now we're talking about the disciples and a physical harvest. I mean spiritual harvest. There is the harvest that takes place in the grain field. And then there is the harvest of souls about which our Lord is presently engaged. Now he's telling them this because he's saying the harvest is near. In fact, it's already begun. That's number one. And he's telling them in verse 38 that I'm going to send you. Notice the words, I sent you to reap. You are going to be engaged in this harvest. That's going to be your work. You're going to be harvesters. In fact, after the Great Commission, I guess we could call them international harvesters. (laughs) That's exactly what they're going to be. International harvesters. They're going to go into all the world to reap this great gospel harvest. Notice that in verse 36, he gives them the nature of this harvest. He says, he that reapeth receiveth wages. And notice this, he gathers fruit unto life eternal. We might gather wheat unto a barn. In this case, we are gathering fruit, which is nothing less than the souls of men unto everlasting life. That's our work. That's the task at which he's going to send his disciples. And then notice the hint here in verse 36, as we said a moment ago, we not only work for the sheer satisfaction of it, but we work for a wage. And he says in verse 36, he that reapeth receiveth wages. You're going to be amply rewarded, amply paid for your service. Now, I know we get a little antsy at the very doctrine of Christians' rewards for their service and for their works because, you know, it tends to smack of a works-oriented thing and we like, of course, the concept of grace and 
you know, all this. But still, to be honest with the scripture, we have to note that over and over again, we are told that we will be rewarded for our service to Christ. That is a theme that runs from one end to the other. And as I said a moment ago, there is certain amount of reward in the sheer satisfaction we gain from doing work. But there's still that paycheck. And whenever the subject is broached, for instance, Jesus having an encounter with the rich young ruler, you remember his rich man told him, give what you got to the poor, you'll have great treasure in heaven. Goes away very sorrowful. And Peter, you know, all the other disciples were too shy to blurt this out, ask this question, but not Peter. Peter says, Lord, what are we going to get? You know, we did what you told him to do. You said if he would give up everything he had, he'd have treasures in heaven. That's exactly what we've done. Now, what are we going to get? Well, that's rather brunt. What's our paycheck going to be? And Jesus said, there's not a one of you who have left houses, lands, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. The point is, you will be liberally, generously rewarded. And whenever this subject is broached, Jesus always points out that you and I are rewarded all out of proportion to our service. You remember the parable of the talents? You know, the guy went away. Actually, this is the parable of the pounds, I guess we'd call it. Man went away into a far country, left his servants engaged back at home with his work. He gave them some money. One guy got a few talents, ten talents, one got five, one got one, and so forth. You remember the story, how they were fruitful, how some of them were, one went and buried his. But when the master came back, he, the man who had five talents, he, or the five pounds, he, he said, Lord, look, I've, I've gained another five pounds with the five pounds that you gave me. Now notice, this isn't his money. I mean, the master didn't give him this, make a gift of it to him. The money belongs to the master. He's just letting the servant use it while he's gone. And the servant says, well, look, I've been able to gain five other pounds with the five pounds that you gave me. And the master says, well done, be thou ruler over ten cities. You gain five pounds, I'll make you ruler over ten cities. Hey, that's pretty good return. I don't think you'll do that well in the stock market. Do you see what Jesus is saying? All out of proportion to your service, it's like going to work down somebody for one day and they pay you $100,000 at the end of the day. You're being rewarded all out of proportion to the amount of service and faithfulness that you have rendered. And that is the consistent testimony of the New Testament. So Jesus is saying here, you're going to out into the field, you're going to work out there with the souls of men, reaping souls, gathering them unto eternal life, that's the nature of your work. The work has already started. I'm sending you forth as reapers out into this field, and great will be your reward. And then there is one other consideration. He reminds them that the reaping that they will be doing comes at the culmination of a long process. Another thing you learn on the farm is that harvest time comes a long time after planting time. There's a whole lot of work that goes into a crop before the day you go out there and harvest it. That is what Jesus now impresses upon his disciples. There were one who were sowing, and then there are others who come along and do the reaping. 
But both are engaged in this grand process. You'll notice here that Jesus himself is benefiting in his encounter with this woman from the labors of others. Now, I know we've already talked about how the Samaritans were certainly off base. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. They didn't know a lot. But notice this woman does have Moses' testimony, doesn't she? And notice that the woman is expecting the Messiah. Now, we go into an absolutely pagan land, and they don't have the first five. They don't have that foundation of Moses' testimony, and neither do they have a messianic expectation. We have to start from ground zero. Jesus didn't have to start at the bottom. He had other men's work to build upon in dealing with this woman. Did you see that? And what he's saying to the disciples, now you're going to go out and largely, you're going to gather a huge crop, a big harvest, but I want to remind you that there are many men who labored and worked a long time before you came on. You're just Johnny come lately. You're just the crew we sent out to harvest the crop. But there's been many men and much labor expended before your day. I think he's talking about the prophets the long line of prophets, those who gave the word and so forth, that the apostles will benefit from their labors. And that is certainly the way it is. It's certainly true of us, folks. Paul will speak of himself as the one who planted in Corinth. And then along came Apollos, and he's watered. But it's God who gives the increase. You see, we get our eyes on the picker. The one who did the harvesting. We said, man, what a wonderful guy he is. Look at how talented. And, well, oh, just look at, how, boy, wouldn't it be good to have a bunch of pickers? Well, if you don't have some that's planting, you're not going to have anything to pick. If you don't have some folks that are hoeing, you're not going to have anything to pick. There's a lot of people involved in the process. We may see a soul saved, and our eyes, again, are upon the reaper, upon the picker. But, oh my, we have no idea whose prayers whose teaching, whose sermons laid the foundation, did the plowing, did the planting that culminated in the reaping. May I suggest to you, and and I can't prove it, it's just a hunch. You do remember in Acts chapter 8 that Philip, after the disciples were being persecuted in Jerusalem, they sort of spread like wildfire. And we read that Philip went down to Samaria this very area. And Philip reaped a tremendous harvest. May I suggest that Philip may well have gone back to this city where Jesus first labored? I just throw that out. It's possible that the reason that there was such a reception for the gospel in Philip's day is because of the preliminary work done by our Lord in this trip. In Samaria. I'm just saying that in real life, that's the way it works. And then, lastly, you understand, lastly, relative to point one, two, and three here, <laughs> not, has no, no relevance to time whatsoever, just the order of things here. But lastly, we notice the woman's witness to her fellow. Samaritans. She goes into town and she says, He told me, you've got to come see this man. He told me all that ever I did. He told me everything about me. Well, that perhaps is a bit of what we call hyperbole, overstatement. But to the woman, it's clear that here is a man 
who has exhibited knowledge of her. He knew about her five marriages. He knew about the one she's living with now. And the extension of that logic is if he knows that, then he knows everything else. He knows everything about me. And that's the amazing thing, that he knew everything about her and still would have something to do with her. That's the flabbergasting thing. It's You know, it's uncomfortable. Wouldn't it be uncomfortable to stand in the presence of someone who knows everything about you? You know, we like to sort of keep our distance. We like to keep some things to ourselves. We guard our privacy. We don't want to be utterly exposed to anyone. And here was one who knew everything about her, all the gruesome details, and yet says, if you'll just ask, I'll give you what you're looking for. Now that is amazing. And she goes into town and she tells the rest of them. And I want you to notice here that there is a progress in the Samaritan's faith. First of all, in verse 39, it says that many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him because of the saying of the woman. They believed her. So they said, well, we'll go investigate. We'll go see what this thing's about. And you'll notice then that they go out in verse 40 and meet him and ask him to stay in their town for two more days. Now, the fact that the Samaritans would ask a Jew to stay in their town for two days is quite an accomplishment in itself. But notice that their faith is growing here. What the Scripture sometimes uses this phrase, from faith to faith. The Samaritans first believe because of what she tells them. But then later on, notice in verse 41, We tend to belittle the human testimony. And indeed, if your faith rests only on a human testimony, then your faith is not saving faith. It just rests upon what man says. But on the other hand, the Word of God never belittles human testimony. In this case, it was the fact that they at least listened to the woman. Now, why they listened to her, I don't know. I mean, her background was questionable at best. Maybe it was her exuberance. Maybe it was her excitement. Maybe it was something they saw in her that they hadn't seen before. Maybe they saw by the way she was acting that, yes, there's something different. Some She must have met someone out there. It's at least it excited their curiosity to where they said, well, yeah, we'll go check it out. Do you notice that in your own case that probably that's how you became a Christian? Through that mechanism? You didn't know the Word of God from... The New York Times. You had no conception of which ends up. But perhaps a trusted friend says, come and see. And you really weren't going because you believed this to be true. You really didn't know enough to even believe it was true. Well, they didn't even make a judgment. But you had some confidence in them. And when they said, why don't you come with me? Why don't you go check this out? You had faith in their testimony. You say, okay, I'll go along. And then, of course, if you indeed are a Christian, you came to the point, and no one ever gets into heaven on somebody else's coattails. You came to the point where you could say, yes, once I believed, I believed enough to check this out because of what you told me, but now I have seen and I have tasted for myself. I have true faith in Jesus as the Son of God, 
because I rest my soul on what he himself has testified in his word. All right, let's sort of bring this to a conclusion. I want to, first of all, impress upon you in trying to make application of all of this, the fact that you and I are called into the work of Christ. If you're Christians, Christ did not call you unto life in order that you could sit around idle, sitting on your hands, waiting on his return, so that you can go to glory and spend the rest of your life in peaceful bliss up there in glory. But Christ, when he calls, calls us, yes, to life, yes, to salvation, but he also calls us to work, to a task. Notice that he is explaining to his disciples that he is calling them into the very same work that he himself has been called unto. And unless you ever think that I'm even hinting at the fact that our work is to be in any way compared to Christ, let me say in the very beginning here that Christ did the hard work. In fact, he is not only the sower. You remember he gave the parable of man went forth to sow, the sower into the field. The son of man is the sower. He's the one who first began the work. But Christ is also the seed that we sow. He says, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground, it bides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. He's the very seed that we're planting. You understand. You and I, we... we don't even qualify. We don't even come close. He's done the hard work already. But he's calling us into this same kind of work. First, he calls the apostles. As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. And then through them, he calls you and I. For he tells them in what we call the Great Commission, Yeah, you go make disciples of all nations, and you know the commandments I've given you? You teach them to observe all those things. The very things that I've commanded you, the work that I've given you to do, when you make disciples, you command them to do it too. And so you and I are called into this great work, this gospel work, this glorious gospel harvest. Now, I want to ask you, when you get up in the morning, I don't know what your routine is, I don't know. Some of you get up, you get ready, you go off to work. You spend your day at work, you come home. I find that many Christians when they sort of let me in on their concept of life, that they sort of feel like the little white rats in a cage, you know, on the the little wheel that turns. They're just going through the motion. It's just they're on the treadmill of life in a boring existence. They just get up every day, they do their thing. Sunday comes along, we go to church. We you know what I'm saying? It's just routine. I don't know why Daryl and I, Daryl was asking me about some of these crazy things that have happened to me in my life and asking me, you know, why do these things always happen to you? Well, number one, I'm probably the most gullible and accident-prone person you'll ever meet. But there probably, I think, is another reason is that I have seen in life a grand adventure. I am conscious of the fact that God has a purpose for me. He has work for me to do. And that is a thrilling way to live your life. I'm sorry, I don't identify with this white mouse on the the treadmill scheme. There's more to what Christ has called us to do than to just go through the motions, just come, get fed, go home, so forth. We are called to work. We are instruments in the hand of our God and the task 
to which we are engaged is the most important thing that a man can be involved with. I remember a preacher, they were trying to get him to uh, resign the ministry. And, oh man, we have all these reverend so-and-sos, you know, involved in politics. Well, they were trying to get him to resign the ministry and to run for senator of some state. And he says, no, he wasn't going to do it. And they said, why not? He says, I won't take the demotion. Why should I quit this important thing? My friend, I am conscious of the fact that perhaps the most important work in the entire city of Memphis that's going on today is right here. And I'm not saying just us, you understand. But wherever the gospel is being proclaimed, the work of eternal life, gathering souls for eternity, growing souls, this is where it's at, folks. This is where it's happening. The movers and the shakers, if we call them that, of our city and of our county and our states, you know, the real movers and shakers are those involved in this work. This is the work that counts. This is the work that endures to all eternity. Its reward is everlasting. Why wouldn't Jesus eat? He had more important things to do. So should we. We're too busy doing what counts, what matters, to be all wrapped up in this other stuff. And then secondly, I want to also point out to you the fact of harvest, that gospel, the soul, what we call soul winning is referred to here as the harvesting or the reaping of a crop. And one of the problems in our day, especially our day, is that we want instantaneous results. We want instant everything. I mean, I get aggravated if the box says heat in the microwave for more than three minutes. I mean, that's how impatient I am. That's about as complicated a directions, by the way, as I can follow in cooking. That's about it. If it says anything more than that, forget it. But yeah, I can stick it in the microwave, turn it on high for three minutes. But if it's longer than three minutes, I don't want to wait. And what I'm describing to you is a spirit that's just indigenous to our modern age. We want results. We want it now. We want patience now. <laughs> to give you an example. And uh, the farmer knows that you can't have instant crop. No such thing. You have to wait. Things have to run their course. And so it is, my friend, with the Christian life. With reaping souls, there's a time of breaking the soil, the hard, rocky soil of a man's heart. There's times of planting the seed. There's times of cultivating and plowing before you get to the day of reaping. I guess my main complaint with the so-called plans of salvation, you know, step one, step two, step three, bingo, you're a Christian is this. Not that they're saying anything wrong necessarily, but that they disregard the need for spiritual discernment of where the person is that you're dealing with. Let me give you an example. Is it always right to say to a person who asks you how to have everlasting life? Let's say that's the question. Somebody just walks up out of the blue and asks you, how can they have eternal life? Is it always proper to respond as Paul did to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? I mean, that's what the guy asked, right? 
Well, yes, that's what Paul responded, and that's what's in our tracks and our our uh, systems of leading people to Christ. Just tell them that. May I point out that if you run into someone with a sword drawn about to plunge it through their heart, that's exactly what I'd recommend. You know, they're at the wit's end, they're at the end of their life, they're ready to end it all, and they say, what must I do to be saved? That's a pretty good reply. But I would point out to you in the New Testament, there were two other occasions when exactly that same question was asked. The rich young ruler came running up to Jesus, Master, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus did not respond that way. Because here was a man in another situation, full of himself, self-righteous, cocky, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Here's some ground that needs to be plowed. Not ready to pick. Do you understand what I'm saying? There has to be. We're not dealing with cookie-cutter people. It's complicated. And part of our work and part of our discernment in all of this is to discern where people are at. We're probing in dealing with the souls of men. We're probing like you go into the doctor and he starts poking on you. What's he doing? And Why don't he just ask you how you feel? How do you, what, what do you think? You know, how, how are you doing? Well, I feel pretty good. Well, I guess you're healthy then. He doesn't do that. He starts poking around on you and says, hmm, what about this? Ooh, that hurts. You understand that that's our job. We've got to probe. We look for points of resistance to the gospel of Christ, points of resistance to the lordship of Jesus, points of resistance to bowing the knee to the King of Kings. That's our job. All right, I'll get off that hobby heart for us, but we have to use some wisdom. And then finally, may God allow us to be influential. This woman was. I don't know how, I don't know why, I don't know the circumstances, but this woman was able to convince a number of her fellow citizens in this city that there was something out here worth checking out. They had enough respect for her, I don't know why, that they said, yeah, we'll go check it out. We'll go see. May God allow you and I to have a character, a reputation, a life that garners the respect of those around us. Now, I don't mean they're going to like you. I don't mean that they will agree with you. But they do respect that, yeah, something's going on. Something's happened. You're not like the other people I know. You don't live like the other people I know. I don't understand it, may not agree with it, but yeah, I believe there's something to this. May God enable us to be that influential in the lives of those around us. And and I can't quit, I just can't, without referring to one little phrase here that has troubled so many And it's the very last thing they say. Now we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. In what sense can it be said that Christ is the Savior of the world? Does it mean that He saves everybody in the world? The Universalists, by the way, quote this verse as a proof text of saying, well, see, this proves that Jesus saves everybody. He's the Savior of the world. Well, no, it clearly doesn't mean that. It does mean 
that he's the Savior who's offered to the world. He's the only Savior they've got. There's not another. And he is the one who offers himself to the world. Do you understand that this to a Jew, to a man like Nicodemus, that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, is an astounding fact. He could understand that God might love Jews, but surely God can't love those Samaritans down there. And these Samaritans are saying, yes, we believe this is the Savior of the world. He saves people in all places, all nationalities. And then He's the Savior of the world in that He saves all kinds of people. People from all sorts of backgrounds. Even the background is mixed and varied as this woman's. That He looks on us. Do you understand? He looks on you. Just like He looked on this woman at the well. And He knows you. He sees Everything that you try to hide from everybody else, he sees. And in spite, not because, but in spite of what he sees, he says, if you'll just ask, I'll give you. I'll give you what you're looking for. I know what it is. I know what will quench the thirsting of your soul. And if you'll just ask, I'll give it. Are you amazed at that? I would think somebody who knew me, inside and out, they'd say, well, you know, wash their hands of me. Get rid of him. And here is one who knows us like no one else and still is willing to give us life. Because that's his mission. That's his work. That's the work his father sent him into this world to do. There was an Indian, I don't mean an American Indian, an Indian from India. He was a Christian in that very multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious world of India. And one of his friends asked him why he was a Christian. And he says, well, I'll tell you why. I was walking along in the dark and I fell into this deep pit And I lay there injured, helpless, and said in a little while, Mohammed walked by. And I said, Mohammed, save me, save me. And he said, Mohammed came over and looked at me down at the bottom of the pit. And Mohammed said, you should have been more careful. You shouldn't have fallen into the pit. And he said, a little while later, Buddha walked by. And I said, Buddha, save me, save me. And Buddha walked over and saw me lying at the bottom of the pit. And Buddha said to close my eyes and to imagine that I wasn't in the pit. And then he said, behold, Jesus Christ walked by. And I said, Jesus, save me. And he climbed down into the pit. And he laid me on his shoulder and carried me out. He said, that's why I'm a Christian. That's what you see at this encounter at the well in Samaria. What a Savior. Let us pray.
Father, impress upon our hearts and minds our need of Christ. And Father, oh my, would there be, could there be any other who would come into this world as He came? And if they knew what He knew, would they offer what He offered? And yet He came and He knew. He knew exactly what he was getting. He knew us inside and out. And he gave. And he gave. And he gave. May we never get over it. May you astound us with the amazing love and grace of this one who came from glory and came to give life. Lord, may these words fall upon some hungry heart today. May they pierce the hard soil. May they penetrate with the seed of the Word and may it give and sprout and spring up into life everlasting. Bless your Word. And thank you. Oh, it's a faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Thank you for him. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for loving us so. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.